the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with some great friends. Uh, maybe you can see them. Maybe you can't. Paul, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm great. Hopefully visible. Thanks, Matt. How are you? Good. I'm trying to tease for the audience that we are now uh, putting more stuff on YouTube so they can see our, you know, faces. I'm not going to put any <laughs> any uh, adjectives along with that, yeah, Paul. Not going to promise any feet or anything. No, that's cool. This is so. This is a hot cakes episode. We have some great articles. Before we get into those, and, and let's actually, let me tease some of, we're going to talk about uh, kidney stones, we're going to talk about a short course of treatment for pneumonia, some magic mushrooms, Paul. Isn't psilocybin and magic mushrooms, am I getting my my drugs mixed up, Paul? Well, no, no, psilocybin is indeed the active part of magic mushrooms, you're correct. Okay, and then we're going to talk about acetazolamide for heart failure. I mean, what a, what an episode, Paul, but first, <laughs> what what is it that we do on the curbsiders? Well, I, I do ask myself that often. We are the <laughs> internal medicine podcast. We usually use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Every so often, we like to stretch our critical appraisal legs and actually try to look at articles ourselves and try to figure out how we feel about them and then bring them to you, the listener. And happily, we have an expert. We have a raconteur, uh, a master educator. Um, what else can we say about the amazing Dr. Rahul Ganacha, who also joins us tonight? He's a great host. I've visited him before. He's a, he's a great host. Lovely home. So yeah, all those <laughs> Thanks, things. Thanks, guys. I don't know what to say. I feel like the, you're setting the bar really high for me. <laughs> Rahul, uh, always great to to do these hotcakes episodes uh, with you here. Makes us feel more confident that we can say things uh, and then just you know pass it off to you if we don't know don't know something. So it's great to have you here as backup. Oh shucks, thanks guys. <laughs> because I'll say something patently wrong, you'll be like, "That's a great thought," but and then you'll sort of finish it off. So like, I still feel smart, but you'll still um, you don't let me sound too stupid until after the fact. So I, it's it's yeah. great to have you. We get to play the trainee role on these episodes, Paul. <laughs> and I'm the pushover attending who's like, "Yeah, good good thought." <laughs> Uh, we may be joined by another special guest later on in the episode, but for now, uh, I'll remind you that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And with that, we're going to skip over Picks of the Week. Half of the audience is rejoicing at that. The other half is not is upset. But we're going to start off with an article on ultra-short course of antibiotics. This was from Clinical Infectious Diseases, came out uh, in something like July of 2022. And we thought that this was this was an interesting article. You know, Paul, you know that I'm, I like to geek out on stuff like this, you know, shorter courses of antibiotics, anything that might be practice changing. Did, and, and I, Paul, were you excited about this title? No, 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 not, not particularly. <laughs> 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 no, it's got yeah, the scientist at Jurassic Park. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should necessarily, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into it, I guess. So the question they were asking was, does does the mortality, does mortality or time to hospital discharge differ among patients that are hospitalized, adult patients that are hospitalized with the diagnosis of pneumonia and oxygen sats greater than or equal to 95% if they discontinued antibiotics early? So that's what they were looking for, almost kind of the safety of doing this. And this was a retrospective study. So they looked at 
out of a, a large hospital system, there were four hospitals uh, that they were pulling from, 40,000 patients who were treated for possible pneumonia based on someone checking pneumonia in the electronic health record when they ordered the antibiotics. And out of that subset, 10,000 patients had SATs that met that greater than or equal to 95%. So they decided let's propensity match uh just under 4,500 patients from that 10,000 patients with with the the higher SATs, and uh, and they looked at people treated for two days or less, or people treated for five to eight days, and the results of this, Paul. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Positive trial, negative trial. We were we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I it's the trial met with my expectations. I mean, I would describe this as negative trial, but I I don't know what you thought about it. I mean, I know a little bit how you thought about it. Now, now I'm just pretending to be ignorant, but why don't you tell me what you thought about that? <laughs> so basically, they, the, I think this was probably a negative trial. Um, they, were, they were looking to see, is there, is there harm caused by this uh, shorter course versus longer course? And, and maybe it doesn't matter if we called it a negative or a positive trial, but basically they found that the patients who were given the shorter courses versus the longer courses, they did not have increased mortality. Um, they, they had maybe even a little bit less uh, shorter d- duration of hospital stay, which makes sense, and, and less exposure to, to antibiotics. But Rahul, anything that jumped out to you about the, the setup of this trial, um, you know, things that we need to be cautious of when we're interpreting the results? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you described correctly in the first part of your uh, uh, mentioning this, Matt, that this was a retrospective study. And so I'll just remind listeners that a retrospective cohort study uh, you know, has a major uh, limitation compared to a randomized controlled trial, which is uh, by definition always prospective. Um, and because this was a retrospective cohort study and not a randomized controlled trial, patients were not randomly allocated to whether they got treated for one to two days versus five to eight days. It was clinicians who made that decision in the real world. And the investigators are now looking back in time to try to figure out, comparing those two groups of patients, how did they do with those two strategies? So as you can imagine, there's going to be differences between the patients, right, that was that were responsible for whether clinicians decided to treat for one to two days versus five to eight days. And this is the central problem of observational research is trying to tease out what really is due to uh, the exposure, uh, in, in this case, the ultra short course of antibiotics, and what is due to confounding, which in this case is all of the other things that make clinicians decide to choose to treat a patient for an ultra short course. Rahul, so I wanted to prompt you. I wanted to prompt you here because you're you're you you gave us a great example before because I was asking you. So they propensity matched this group, right? So they could show you this nice table, all these comorbidities and and characteristics that they they kind of made sure they were similar between the two groups after propensity matching. But I was asking you about residual confounding. Yeah. And you made a comparison. I think Ozzy Osbourne was involved. Can you can you uh, tell the audience about that? Oh, absolutely. So uh, to to frame this uh, this answer to Matt's question, the problem that propensity matching is intended to solve, okay, is the existence of residual confounding in an observational study. Because we're not randomizing patients to uh, treatment A or treatment B, we're just looking back at what happened. No matter how good of a job we try to do to control for confounders, there's always going to be this problem of residual confounding. 
So there was a meme floating around Twitter in the past couple days and weeks that I thought just encapsulated this perfectly. And this was uh, trying to find a uh, match for uh, King George III. Uh, and it turns out Ozzy Osbourne uh, is a match in the sense that they were both uh, men born in 1948, raised <laughs> in the United Kingdom, uh, live in castles, married twice, wealthy and famous. The list goes on. But it, I love the example because it kind of uh, highlights how even if you match on all these things that you can measure, there's still going to be some unmeasurable differences that you're you're not able to capture with uh, variables like that. Yeah. So I don't think Prince George snorts lines of ants or whatever Ozzy Osbourne <laughs> is up to. I mean, I don't know that we know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, but th- to me, this was like... Um, I think the part of the reason they were, they were looking at this, there were some randomized trials looking at this three day course of pneumonia, three day, uh, three day course versus longer course, like eight days of treatment that, um, seemed like there was, it was non-inferior and we can link to one of those studies. So patients who had clinical stability at three days, they decided, and it sounded like these were more patients. We were certain they had pneumonia. Um, and, and those patients were, uh, if they, there was no difference between, or that was at least not inferior to stopping at three days versus continuing an extra five days. That's not what this was. Um, the, this was, you know, it, this was selected by the EH, based on the EHR diagnosis of pneumonia. We don't know clinically what was going on, but when you, when you were practicing in the hospital, Paul, did you have patients like this where after two days you were just like, yeah, maybe we should stop antibiotics? Yeah, no. well, right. And that's, and I think that's the part that I, I'm sort of struggle with this. And I think I might be looking at the question wrong, but I, I think it's very, very common, at least for me, to hedge my bets a little bit because there's no diagnosis. There's no good billing code for just in case. So you have a patient who comes in a little bit short of breath, who's got maybe some schmutz, but maybe not, who has all the right gestalt for a COPD, but they might actually have a little bit of heart failure, but also maybe they had a fever at home. So you just start the antibiotics. Um, and then as they kind of declare themselves after two days, you're like, oh, that one, right. And then stop them. So I, you know, and you, you treat the thing that's actually going on with them, whether it's that's the exacerbation or not. So like I can just picture many clinical scenarios where you just weren't sure. So you start just in case and then de-escalate pretty quickly once you actually get uh, more clarifying information. And I don't know how you tease that out or how you sort of account for that um, with the data that they were looking at. I sort of feel like this study informs that question uh, very well, Paul, because this study was limited to patients who were saturating 95% uh, uh, and above on room air, the median of all their ho- um, uh, their oxygen saturation values on the first hospital day. So, so this study really only applies to patients who are right on the edge, like how you describe. You know, these are not patients with you know a dense low bar infiltrate and hypoxemia right. on room air. These are those patients who many of whom are unlikely to really have bacterial pneumonia. And this is kind of corroborated by the fact that only four percent of patients in this study had any bacteria identified on a sputum culture at all. And even with the limitations of diagnostics and pneumonia, we know that in community-acquired pneumonia, the rate of culture positivity is closer for, for bacterial organisms is closer to like 15%. So the inclusion and exclusion criteria for this study uh, kind of took advantage of selection bias in a way that I think is kind of a strength in that they limited the study population to people who are unlikely to have bacterial pneumonia and then do just fine without antibiotics. So I my my take homes from this the the bottom line I think that we are good as uh, as physicians that work in the hospital of identifying patients when we get that warm and fuzzy feeling we can stop antibiotics early and looking at people with oxygen sats greater than or ninety five equal to ninety five percent you know that may be a good way to select um, select out that group or help you think about that but uh, I I do think 
listeners, when you this is why it's important when you see like a top line result, ultra short antibiotic course, you know, is not inferior. You really have to read about it because this is not telling us that we should just be giving everyone with pneumonia two days of antibiotics instead of five, seven, 10 days. That was um, so, the exact point I was going to make because the word suspected is in the title and it's doing a lot of heavy lifting there. So yeah. like, this is not, you know, an ultra short course for pneumonia. It's for suspected right. pneumonia is specifically what they're looking at. So uh, I, I really enjoyed going through this. This gave us a, a good excuse to go through a retrospective study and talk about residual confounding. Um, I would give this, Paul, three hotcakes, uh, not not four or five, three hotcakes. Um, definitely an interesting, interesting article. And um, I'll, I'll link to the, the randomized trials that were done with the shorter courses uh, that I had mentioned to in the show notes. So now, Paul, you know, uh, as I said earlier, I'm curious about magic mushrooms. I, I, I don't know too much about them, but uh, I, tell me what's, what's new with magic mushrooms these days in, in the world of medicine. You know, I'm glad you asked, and it's. I did just want to mention. You know, I, I'm glad that we skipped past the picks of the week because I certainly wasn't going to pick a tangentially related topic to this study. I, I wasn't <laughs> going to suggest the uh, David Cronenberg movie Naked Lunch um, playing this month at the Philadelphia <laughs> Film Festival. But anyway, it, but this is it's it, this is a, it's an interesting article. There's always a little bit of sort of low grade ambient buzz, no pun intended, about management of various substance use disorders with psychedelics. Like I feel that's like always kind of vaguely out there in the literature. And this this recent article that was in JAMA Psychiatry is looked at the percentage of heavy drinking days following psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy versus placebo in the treatment of adult patients with alcohol use disorder. And this was a this was a randomized double blind, <laughs> which we'll get to as much as you're able to clinical trial <laughs> in which the patients, they, they received psychotherapy, both both the control group and and the. Uh, the study group received psychotherapy throughout that duration, but the the study group received psilocybin at weeks four and weeks eight of their course, and they were hoping to see if the the administration of the psilocybin reduced the percentage of drinking days or um, days drinking entirely, or even just amount of alcohol they actually drank. Um, and there's been again lots of talk about this. I believe this is actually based a little bit on a proof of concept study done by authors um, a couple of years earlier, and they just kind of expanded it and sort of formalized it a little bit. Um, yeah, there's been, and and I will say, if people are interested in this stuff, there is no shortage of podcasts and experts and that are making the rounds, Reddit pages, talking about yeah. various hallucinogenics, hallucinogenics for substance use disorder, PTSD, refractory depression, all these things. So it's an exciting area of research. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Paul. So tell no, 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 no. it's 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 best to yeah to interrupt. There's a lot of me in this. Um, <laughs> But it's just in terms of how they did it, so there's you know psychotherapy for all. The study medication was psilocybin. It was given in a a plain capsule, dosed by weight, so 25 milligrams per 70 kilos um, for the first session in the study group, and then <laughs> for the second uh, administration of the medication weeks later, if they scored low on this test that they gave, that what was actually called the the Ponky and forgive if I mispronounce this Richards Mystical Experience Questionnaire. So if they didn't have a sufficiently mystical experience during the first session, then they got a higher dose for the second session. And then the uh, the control group received diphenhydramine, 50 milligrams the first session, and 100 milligrams the second uh, the second dose of medications. Both, both groups um, had to be supervised for eight hours. They were encouraged to lie on the couch and listen to a standardized playlist of music. And I would pay so much money <laughs> to get my hands on the actual playlist. Um, it it wasn't a supplement. No, it was not. I, I believe me, I looked. But what they what they were looking for, and it was basically the, the decrease in heavy drinking days was their primary outcome, and then secondary outcomes included things like the mean drinks per day and the percentage of drinking days, and then they assessed 
based both on patient recall of alcohol use, and they did some testing of, of hair and nails just to see, uh, just to confirm if there was absence or not. We should email the authors and ask for the playlist. I, Rahul, Rahul, you think they would answer us? I, I mean, I can't think of a better use of the corresponding <laughs> author email address than this question. <laughs> it's. I think it was either Weird Al or Pink Floyd, Paul. That's my guess. Or maybe I, a mix of both. Some combination of both. Yeah. I. Mm, all right. I'm not going to editorialize psilocybin and Weird Al, but I will ask you, Matt, what do you think happened? What would you expect the outcome to be? Well, I'd be curious because, Paul, they, they had a lot of psychotherapy sessions, which I, you know, I feel like that could, uh, you know, bias towards the null hypothesis, meaning that there we would it would be hard to prove a treatment effect if you if you did a really good job with psychotherapy. Are you going to tell us uh, was this a positive trial? Yeah, it, it, well, it, it was a positive trial, and, and I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. But both groups did better. Both both arms, whether you got diphenhydramine or whether you got psilocybin, initially, especially in the ramp up period, even before the medications, just with the psychotherapy alone, both groups actually had a significant decrement in. Uh, the percentage of, of drinking days. But then over the course of the 32 weeks, which was the length of the study, there was um, more, there was a greater decrease in alcohol use in the psilocybin arm compared to the diphenhydramine arm. So both both arms, by the way, did better overall, though kind of tapered off and you had some diminishing returns. But the psilocybin group actually had a decrease in their, a greater decrease in the percentage. So arguing that there is, um, there is efficacy to administering psilocybin to help manage alcohol use disorder, especially in combination with psychotherapy, if I'm interpreting. Does that sound right, Rahul? Yeah, I think your interpretation is right. Um, I, I like that you you know just picked a handle of calling this a positive trial. I agree with that. With respect to the primary outcome, a difference was shown. Um, and then you know thinking about what are the sources of chance and bias that could explain that? Because the whole point of critical appraisal, in my view, is just asking like, how could this be wrong? What are the ways in which I could be wrong about my interpretation of this study? And so reading this positive study, I'm looking for sources of chance and bias that could explain that positive finding. And I'll just give one example of each. In terms of chance, um, you can actually see in figure two in panel A, for those of you following along at home, um, there is a big drop in the percentage of heavy drinking days from the screening visit to uh, weeks one to four, the first assessment in both groups. And there's probably several factors contributing to that, one of which might be the Hawthorne effect. People probably, you know, behave differently when they know they're being observed. Mm -hmm. um, another factor is something that we've discussed on a previous episode of Hotcakes, and that's something called regression to the mean. Anytime you define uh, enrollment in a study based on an extreme value of some variable, you're always going to see that variable go back to its central tendency towards the mean on follow-up. So this is one example of why it's so important to have a control group doesn't really matter what the control group is. And I found myself wondering when reading this paper, okay, why diphenhydramine? Is there some secret benefit of diphenhydramine I don't know about? But really, I think the value is in just having a comparator because this way you, you know that you're not getting fooled by seeing a big initial decline in a patient's percentage of heavy drinking days. So that's uh, one example of how chance could uh, create um, a positive finding. Um, that sort of, I think, inflates some of the effect size of the change that's seen from the very uh, beginning at the screening visit. Uh, and then in terms of uh, bias, we talked a little bit before getting on air about how blinding was just totally impossible in this study. And Paul, I know that you uh, had some reactions to uh, the uh, uh, blinding integrity assessments that they did. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, and I, it's certainly not a criticism because I just don't know a way around it. Like, I'm not sure that you can compare 
adequately dose psilocybin to diphenhydramine. And it sounds like just based on even the authors mentioned this is a limitation, they recognize that it, it sounds like they've tried in the past things like methylphenidate or niacin or low-dose psilocybin compared to high dose to see if they could right. mitigate some of that recognition of the treatment arm. But it just it, you, it doesn't seem like there's a good way to do it. You, that you'd is have safe. to give a hallucinogen, Paul, that you knew didn't work for this. So they would still be hallucinating, but you you knew it didn't work for this, which I I, I don't know that we have that information. Uh, <laughs> but I'm sure someone will volunteer as tribute. But yeah, that's that's exactly yeah. right. And the effect the effect size, Paul, of this at you know it was more pronounced early on, and then towards the end around week thirty six, the the graphs are a little closer together as far as like number of drinks per day, heavy drinking days, and and so I'm not I'm not sure if. If it's just that they needed to be, if the treatment effect wore off over time um, as they got further away, or if, but it, it did seem like early on there the graphs were there was more spread between them, and it seemed like it was um, it was helping people. But did you do you think this would be practice changing, or can you talk about the practicality of that? Yeah, so that's thanks for sort of setting me up for the bottom line. Like I I, I do. I think this is exciting. I think anything that we have an armamentarium to deal with with any of with alcohol use disorder is exciting. I will say, logistically, you know, the, these patients were sat with for eight hours at a time for safety's sake. Um, there, there was fairly intensive psychotherapy that happened over the course of the time, so it involves a lot of resources that I even now don't have access to. Um, so I, I just I don't know how it would actually be operationalized. And especially since we don't do a particularly good job of prescribing medications that we know work for alcohol use disorder as it is, like they are already widely prescribed. So if you make it even more complicated with something that has a lot of stigma already kind of attached to it, I just, I'm not sure that it's going to be happening anytime soon, but I do find it exciting that there there might be something that we can eventually add to our toolkit. I just don't know what that will look like in the immediate short term. And th- and this is another one of those headlines that I just worry about, you know, the public is going to be like, oh, magic mushrooms. I'm going to just, you know, people are just unsupervised, going to be taking magic mushrooms, thinking it's going to treat their alcohol use disorder when these patients were in very serious psychotherapy and having very guided, you know, safe, I guess as safe as you can, uh, trips with the with the medication. So it's it would be exciting if uh, i i think what's this going to look like in the future is there's going to be centers where you can go to and you know programs that will have to be developed where people can get get referred to to do this it'll have to be cuz the average like primary care office is going to be able to do this right yeah and i yeah. think even sort of our rudimentary sort of centers for stuff like this are not that great so this this feels like it's asking for a lot of resources but i i think it's good to be hopeful it seems like a lot of people are pumping money into it because it's it's uh <laughs> It's uh, yeah, I think there's public interest in this. If pop culture and uh, the podcasts I listen to are any any indication, there's a lot of people very interested in this, and we yeah. need to do something about mental health. So it's and 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 substance use. So it's it's good yeah. to have tools. Anything that forwards a conversation, I think, is good. So I think that's exactly yeah. right. And I I will, for what it's worth, give this uh, three. Uh, we're calling it three savory mushroom hotcakes. So not immediately practice changing, <laughs> but I think it, at least very interesting and may change practice in the future. Now, Paul, Rahul has a a trial here, and Rahul, is this the Advor trial? Because Paul, what do you, how do you rate this trial name? I am shocked that a a cardiology trial just just dropped <laughs> just dropped the ball on the one yard line like this. Like I feel like there are so many probably options. I don't, maybe they just ran out of words. I mean, I guess that's a possibility, yeah. but it's, it's not great, man. I think it sounds cool. It sounds like a transformer or something. 
Yeah, well, Paul's a big trial head, Rahul. So you know, <laughs> I don't true. know that you're you qualified. To, I know you're. <laughs> I know you. You have some chops and critical appraisal, but Paul is really, you know, an advor just not doing it for him. But uh, I mean, we got Castellan out there, and this is just this is just an abject failure. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe advor advor af is there that, you go. does that make now it better? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, all right, Rahul, tell us about this this study. I love it. Okay, so the name aside. Oh. Um, the question um, that this study was asking was, does acetazolamide, when added to usual care, which is that loop diuretics, among patients who are admitted to the hospital with acute decompensated congestive heart failure, does acetazolamide improve the incidence of successful decongestion by day three? And in this study, successful decongestion was defined as the absence of signs of volume over overload other than trace edema. And this was as assessed by a cardiologist uh, by the third day after randomization. So there were some important secondary outcomes that um, you can read more about in the paper, but they included mortality, readmissions, and adverse events. So the comparison in this study, the study was done at 27 centers in Belgium, and it included a little over 500 patients out of about 3,000 who were screened. So just under 20% of screened patients were included. The patients all had to be hospitalized with decompensated heart failure, and they had to have at least one sign of volume overload. Um, they all had to have uh, biochemical evidence of volume overload, so an elevated NT pro BNP or BNP. And they had to be on the equivalent of an oral dose of furosemide at least 40 milligrams a day for at least a month. Couldn't have been on acetazolamide or an SGLT2 inhibitor, a couple other exclusions in there too. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to get either acetazolamide 500 milligrams IV uh, once daily or placebo, plus IV diuretics, uh, loop diuretics in the total daily amount of two times the patient's usual home dose. So kind of similar to what we do here. Uh, overall, patients were pretty well-balanced. There was one exception I'll talk about in my interpretation, um, but just to tell you who these patients were, the mean age was in the high 70s. Basically, everyone was white. Uh, the baseline congestion score was a 4 out of 10 in both groups. Uh, everybody had edema. About half of patients had pleural effusions. These patients were decently sick. 30% of them had NYHA class 4 heart failure, and 80% uh, of patients in both groups had CKD. And you so, mentioned the congestion score. I just wanted to highlight what that was. So they they were because this this is a bit different. Like we talked with Dr. Kittleson uh, about this, and we were typically we monitor like JVP. We monitor the patient's weight, how the patient's feeling. Those are some of the things that I would monitor. If you're into POCUS, you might monitor B lines and uh, JVP with that as well. Uh, I mean, peripheral edema is something I monitor a little bit. But they were talking about pulmonary edema or, or pleural effusions, ascites, and uh, and a peripheral edema here. So it was a bit of an odd way. And the, and the scoring system would seem like it would have to be a little bit subjective, and I'm not sure how they were tracking the pleural effusions and the ascites, but uh, it, it would almost seem like it'd have to be POCUS or, um, I don't know, Paul, do you have thoughts on that? I didn't, I didn't see it. I, I was going to ask the same question, but I was scared to feel dumb, like especially the pleural effusion. I don't know if we're, you know, percussing out uh, an air fluid yeah. level or if we're you know, at the level <laughs> crack. I was like, I don't know what that looks like specifically. They had especially... a cardiologist from 1950 and he... <laughs> <laughs> Three yeah. of them. No, I, you bring up a, a good point, though, in terms of, uh, you know, how, how similar or different is this to what our practice is? And I think you're right, Matt. I think a lot of us are much more comfortable kind of thinking about uh, changes in weight, um, assessing a jugular venous uh, level. 
And um, there's sort of a, a trade-off uh, between the subjectivity of uh, an assessment and kind of the ease of, of, of measurement. Yeah. So I think this was probably just sort of a practical uh, uh, trade-off in terms of uh, what can right. be easily assessed. But because they were – so the congestion score, they gave numbers to edema 0 to 4, ascites 0 to 3, and pleurofusion 0 to 3. So how they did that, you know, may be subjective. But so the results um, – I interrupted you there. Keep, keep Not at going. all. As Paul said, there's a lot of me in this, so interruption <laughs> is good. Um, okay, so let me tell you what happened. So the results of this trial, successful decongestion by day three, the primary outcome, happened in 42.2% of patients who were randomized to acetazolamide in comparison with 30.5% of patients randomized to placebo. So that is an absolute difference of 11.7%. Okay, and that corresponds to a number needed to treat of nine patients to achieve decongestion over three days. And the relative risk ratio for that difference is 1.46. Uh, so about a 46% relative uh, increase in the number of patients who are getting successfully decongested by day three. The secondary endpoints, um, I'm not going to spend much time on, uh, but length of stay was shorter by about a day. Uh, more patients randomized to acetazolamide were decongested at discharge. Um, but there was no difference in uh, endpoints at three months that included death, rehospitalization for heart failure, and there were no glaring safety signals. It wasn't significant, but I noticed that the the, the adverse kidney events and the uh, hypokalemia, hypotension, they were trended towards more t towards the treatment group, which I guess you'd expect, but they weren't st uh, statistically significant. Um, so I'm not sure if, if you had a bigger group, if we would detect that, or if we started to do this widespread in practice, if that could be a concern. But that that just kind of piqued my interest, that signal. Yeah, I think your caution is well-deserved. I mean, anytime you're talking about adverse events in the single digits range, you know, one or two adverse events on either side could make the, the difference in whether or not something is statistically significant. So I do think that uh, kind of careful monitoring of this strategy, uh, if implemented in practice, would be absolutely required to make sure that we're not overdoing it with patients uh, uh, more effectively decongesting them. Absolutely. So would this be, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about this? I mean, we mentioned that the congestion score was a little bit odd, but I think like, you know, how you're, so so maybe if if the way that we normally measure congestion, maybe we don't know how this would have performed, this, this strategy would have performed if we were trying it that way. But uh, would you think this is going to change what you're doing in practice as a hospitalist? Yeah, well, I mean, that that is the million dollar question. And so to um, put my money where my mouth is and uh, walk you through my thinking. So this was a positive study because they did show that the, the, uh, trial drug was associated with um, some benefit. So what are the things that could make that wrong? What are the sources of chance and bias that could explain that? Um, so the primary outcome was unchanged um, from the protocol to the paper. So that's good. Uh, nothing concerning there. Um, I did find one source of chance that could bias towards a negative finding, which actually increases my confidence in these findings. And that's that the patients in the acetazolamide group at baseline required a higher cumulative dose of maintenance diuretics. They were on a median of 60 milligrams of furosemide equivalents a day as compared with 40 milligrams a day in the placebo group. So why would this matter? Well, the subgroup analyses kind of support that acetazolamide might work better in less severe CHF. 
And this is totally a hypothesis for my part, and I would welcome anybody with more uh, content expertise, you know, kind of helping us learn more about this. But looking at the subgroup analyses, the magnitude of the treatment effect was greater in people with uh, LV ejection fractions greater than 40, people who were on less than 60 milligrams of furosemide for maintenance daily, and people with a baseline congestion score of less than four. So those all seem like patients who uh, are presenting with less severe heart failure. And some of the supplemental data really makes it clear that acetazolamide in these patients was really just providing more effective diuresis. They had a cumulative urine output of about half a liter per day, or half a liter over the course of the, the three study day period more. They had more sodium naturesis, uh, more sodium loss in the urine. So I, I can't really say whether the difference that we're seeing in congestion is really due to, to acetazolamide or due to just more effective diuresis, regardless of the method. Yeah. So that, you know, the fact that patients in the acetazolamide group did need a higher maintenance dose of loop diuretic does make me think that, okay, maybe we saw a little bit less of a benefit in those patients than we would have seen had that uh, been distributed evenly across groups. So if anything, that kind of increases my confidence in these findings. All but right. All that can... Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, hotcakes, what's your... Yeah, absolutely. All, all those things considered, I'm not really seeing anything to make me worry that this is, you know, a very highly selected patient population. Um, it is a limitation that all of these patients were white, so replication of these findings in, in a more diverse setting is, is definitely needed. Um, all that considered, I think I am ready to give this four out of five hotcakes because it doesn't take much to get me to use a safe and effective <laughs> drug. So yeah, four, four out of five. Now, the great Dr. Nora Toronto, uh, our, our chief editor of the Curbsiders Digest, which comes out twice a month, uh, she was supposed to present an article, but I will I will try to present it. And Rahul, you can you can help me uh, help me out here with the statistical analysis. But this was a trial looking at removal of small asymptomatic kidney stones. So they were looking at these small stones, six millimeters or less, and seeing if this improved the primary outcome, which was relapsing stone disease. And that was basically patients who went to the ER for a stone, needed surgery for a stone, or if there was growth of, of secondary stones. Um, so this was a randomized trial. It was relatively uh, small trial, 38 patients in the group where they removed the stones and 35 patients in the control group. These were adult patients. And, um, but it was a positive trial. There was 75% lower incidence of relapsing stone removal um, at this 4.2-year follow-up. Um, there was about 16% of patients in the treatment group had a relapse versus 63% of patients in the control group. So, uh, Rahul, anything about the setup of this trial that, you know, that you see as a limitation that could have uh, been a source of chance or bias making this less likely to be practice-changing? Yeah. I mean, as you were listing the primary outcome, I had to do a double take because th this is like huge. That's like an absolute risk reduction of like almost 50 percent, 40, 47 percent. So, you know, you don't see that every day. Um, that's kind of a, a really large effect size. Um, so to answer your question, you know, what are the, the features of this study uh, in terms of the design and the interpretation that could threaten that really uh, hugely positive result? Um so the only things that really stuck out to me, um, I always uh, like to verify that the primary outcome in the study is the same as what was initially registered in the clinicaltrials.gov protocol, or if it's different, that we've at least got a compelling explanation for kind of why that was done. And in this study, the primary outcome was changed, but 
to my eye, it looks like they actually made it more stringent because they included some sort of clinical criteria to stone growth, like patients needed to present for an emergency department visit, emergency department visit if they had pain, uh, rather than just a growth of a stone. And and that's something that's pretty patient centered. So to me, that that seems okay. Um, so I'm not really finding any sources of chance. You were talking a little bit before, Aramat, that you know because the number of patients in this study was so small. You know, if there really is a big effect out there in nature, you don't need a lot of observations to see it. But anytime you're dealing with a small number of observations, you're really vulnerable to the impact of any one of those things changing. So replicating this in the real world uh, would be uh, would kind of increase my confidence um, that there is a big effect of removing asymptomatic stones. And then in terms of sources of bias that could explain that positive result, the biggest um uh, weakness that I saw here is in their consort diagram, uh, the number of patients who were randomized is reported, but the number of patients who were screened was not reported. So you really need to know how many patients were screened for enrollment to get even the roughest idea of a quantitative measure of selection bias. Because if this study represents only you know the smallest number of really highly selected sort of model patients for this intervention, then that kind of raises your concern that selection bias could be explaining some of this effect size. You might not be able to replicate these results in the real world. So very big effect size. Um, even if this is an overestimate, I'm kind of hopeful that uh, you know in the real world we're, there's going to be some benefit to removal of small kidney stones. Um, but I think um, I'm going to have to wait for um, somebody with some content expertise in urology to tell me uh, what to make of these findings. Yeah, and it it seemed like from what I was reading about this uh, in the in the literature. It seems like maybe this is going to be like a shared decision with the person doing the procedure. There's about 25 minutes extra time in the OR on average for patients who are having these asymptomatic stones removed. And they mentioned that was about a 38% increase in time. So, uh, you know, in real world, what would that translate to complication rate wise? And it, I, they they did a dollar cost analysis of it. And it seemed like it was, you know, cheaper than ER visits and recurrent you know, st- procedures for stones and things. Um, but it's interesting. And, uh, you know, for us, we're not, we don't have the power to remove these stones, Paul. So this is certainly, I would say this is not practice changing for me, but I, I didn't even know this was like an option that they could do this. Um, before we had talked to Dr. Goldfarb, he was telling us that they can actually, in some cases, go up into the calyces and remove stones, uh, endoscopically, which was news to me at the time. I do. I'm excited because I, I feel like there is now a growing body of while we were in their literature, you know, between <laughs> left atrial appendage closure for patients with AFib and like now this ureteral stone, like, yeah, for me, mess around there anyway. Like, I just, I think it's as evidence builds, so just think if surgeons free license, just kind of mess around and take out stuff that bothers them aesthetically is great. So, uh, more of that. Um, best of luck to all the surgeons out there. That's one of my favorite things you've said in a while, Paul. There is a growing body of while we were in there. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, we were just we Paul and I, Raul, we were we were recording, filming AFib uh, earlier this week, talking about the left atrial appendage surgical closure, and they're just like, yeah, while we're in there, we'll just sew that thing up, <laughs> and uh, I that that always that that still I find still find that funny. Yeah, it's like, just freestyle, man. Patients do better. <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, it's it's been a long night, Paul. It is it's a weeknight. It's late. We've we've done hero's work. Four four great articles. And uh Paul, can you can you take us to an outro? 
Happy to. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Yummy. Uh, I thought, uh, okay, I was waiting for a hole. I was like, <laughs> your time to shine, man. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. You can also email us at ask curbsiders at gmail.com and a special thanks to Podpaste who does editing and production for the show Elizabeth Proto runs our social media Stuart Brigham composed our theme music and until next time I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto I've been Dr. Rahul Balvant Ganatra and as always our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams thank you and goodbye and Paul, I forgot the CME announcement. Uh, VCU Health <laughs> does our CME. Go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Paul, you want the last word? Still, still goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>